If you would turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Our text for this evening will be primarily verse 22, a statement that may give us some questions. The title for the sermon this evening is The Power of God Through the Prayer of Faith. The Power of God Through the Prayer of Faith. Let's start in verse, reading in verse 18. Matthew 21, verse 18, down through verse 22. Now in the morning, when he, that is Jesus, was returning to the city, Jerusalem, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be, take, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. If you've ever been to the city of Washington, D.C., in our country, we have this phenomenon, this thing that you can do when you're visiting. If you write your congressman, you can get a tour of, you know, you name it, the Capitol building. My sister, uh, one of my sisters, uh, is kind of in charge of planning a trip for a group of seniors, uh, uh, 18-year-old seniors in, in high school, academic seniors, um, should they take a class trip to uh, Washington, D.C., and she plans the whole thing out, and she's a, a, a very good planner and has schedules a great trip for them, and they see a lot of good things. But what do you do? You write your congressman, you're able to get a tour, and it's on the basis of you have this distant relationship of you reside in the state of Ohio and you can write, you know, who knows? Maybe you write the senator, maybe you write J.D. Vance, maybe you write Sherrod Brown, maybe you write, I don't, uh, one of our congressmen or women uh, in, in the House of Representatives, one of your representatives. You can get in the, get in the Capitol building, you can get a tour of various places based on kind of a distant relationship. But if you imagine you're one of these super donors and uh, you, you've organized uh, whatever they call them, a super PAC, and you contribute millions of dollars from um, uh, charitable donations or what, however they're categorized for tax purposes, and you ask that congressman for something, you have a little bit of a different relationship, right? You've got a little bit more say in that person's life, and they're probably going to do it for you if, if they can. And of course, this is why people organize things, and a lot. that's what lobbying groups are all about, is they try to sway political opinions, and that really gives a congressman or woman Something to think about when someone who has a lot of influence with them and they've got a really well-established relationship is trying to influence a certain kind of decision. Well, here in this text, I believe Jesus is highlighting a certain kind of relationship that you must have if you're going to see God's power through prayer. If you're going to pray effectively, 
You need to have a certain kind of relationship. And this is really tied up in one word that Jesus uses in this verse. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. He's highlighting the kind of relationship that you have to have if you're going to pray in this kind of way and see these kinds of results. This uh, statement and this account, there's a a cross-reference in the book of Mark that you could look, maybe you have it in your margin, it's in Mark 11, where it's actually in two phases. Um, even if you just look at the reference there, Mark 11, 12 through 14, and then there's something that Mark records in the middle, and then they come back to the fig tree. Mark kind of extends the whole scene out, and you learn some more details. Matthew compresses it here, and it looks like it happens all at the same time. This event occurs in the final week of Jesus' life. This is once he's come to Jerusalem, and he's coming into the city by day and teaching in the temple and then he leaves by night and he goes and stays out in bethany or wherever he's staying this is before he's in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the passover having the last supper with them this is in the last seven days of his life before he's killed on a cross before he's executed this comes if you look back uh, at the beginning of the chapter really in the context of several entrances. Matthew draws attention to several entrances that Jesus makes, and it's helpful to understand the context to see how Jesus is highlighting this relationship that you have to have. If you look back at Matthew 21, verse 1, you may have a heading there. It's called the triumphal entry. He comes to Jerusalem. This is when he arrives at Jerusalem for the final time, and he sends two disciples ahead gets him a donkey. He comes in, and the Jews, the common people, they're rejoicing. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's entering Jerusalem. But then look in verse 12, as Matthew tells it. Jesus, what does he do upon entering Jerusalem? He enters the temple. So he comes as a king, riding on a donkey. And then what does he do? The first place that king puts his foot in the ground is in the temple. And Jesus is the rightful ruler there. And what does he do? He clears house because there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of unbelief in this place. He entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. That's what happens there. And then in verse 18, in the morning, after he had left and come back, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. Look in verse 23. Matthew's definitely painting a scene for us. When he entered the temple, another entrance, he's painting a scene. And then he tells a few parables. And you see from these parables side by side and a few uh, lessons that he gives, Jesus is really highlighting a problem that here he's telling it in story format. But he was addressing this when he was overturning the tables in the temple. People challenge him in the temple. He doesn't tell them by what authority he's doing what he's doing, but then he tells a parable about two sons. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. He answered, I will not, but afterward regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he said, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. He's really taken it to the religious leaders and to the hypocritical Jews, the self-righteous Jews, drawing attention to the fact that their system of worship 
It might keep all the external forms of the law, but it's absolutely hollow. And he's telling them that here. He's right up front with them. These sinners, the people that you won't even touch, they can't even come into the temple under your law. They're going to get into the kingdom before you because they have a heart for God. Listen to another parable, verse 33. And he tells this parable of a landowner who rents out his vineyard to growers and he goes to get payment and he sends slaves and they treat them shamefully. Finally, the landowner says, I'll send my son. And they say, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him and throw him out. And they do. Of course, Jesus is speaking about what's about to happen to him. He is the son and they're about to kill him and throw him out. What's going to happen to these people? Verse 41, what's that landowner going to do? He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. And Jesus says, look in the mirror. That's you. These people have a problem. And Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that they do not have a relationship with God by faith. Do you see that? He's highlighting in every way in this last week of his life. You must have faith in the Son of God to be right with God. It doesn't matter that you're a child of Abraham. You must believe he, they understand, verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They understood he was speaking about them. They <laughs> were really mad. They sought to seize him, but they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. It's the same thing in the next chapter. He goes on. He really is hammering this point that you must have faith. So now as you go back to this incident with the barren fig tree, that comes right in the context of all this. It comes with only the disciples present, not all the religious leaders. But what is Jesus drawing their attention to? This is why I highlight that word, believing. I believe Jesus is giving them, as a master teacher, he's giving them an illustration of what they're seeing him do and what they're hearing him say to the religious leaders. He's giving them an illustration of people who look religious but don't actually have the substance. In the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Jesus was genuinely hungry here. He's not making things up. He's looking for food. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. What's going on here? If you've ever seen a fig tree, maybe you know this. I know nothing about fig trees aside from the fact that they're a tree and they grow figs, okay? But as I understand it, uh, there are certain kinds of fig trees that will actually produce the fruit before the leaves. Um, Mark actually tells us in an interesting detail that the reason there weren't figs on it is because it wasn't the time for figs. So maybe they were out of season, but whatever the case was, this tree has the appearance of fruit because it has leaves that have come after the fruit. I've, certain, I've seen that there are other kinds of fig trees that that is not the case. But what is going on? I believe Jesus is using this fig tree as a symbol of the hypocrisy of Judaism. Leaves that pretend but do not produce fruit of faith. That's what was going on at the temple. That's why Jesus cleared it out. That's why Jesus told this parable about the son who said, I will go and then didn't. They pretend at something, but they don't really produce. It's empty. It's hollow. So you see how this whole week is just a showdown between Jesus, truly the Son of God, the one who is going to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood, and hollow, hypocritical Judaism. 
That's what Jesus is illustrating for the disciples here. And I believe as Jesus pronounces a judgment on this, this isn't, does it seem uh, petulant to you or kind of mean-spirited? That's not what Jesus is doing. He's using this as a symbol of God's judgment on hypocritical Judaism, just like the clearing of the temple, just like the statement about, if you tear this down, I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus is replacing all of this. This shriveling up that's quick and devastating. It's going to come. It's going to happen. And he's illustrating it for them. And of course, historically, we know that this does happen. The Romans somehow even chucked the stones off of that platform. It's astounding what they did in 70 AD. So the, the withering of this tree symbolizes God's judgment. It's an illustration of that. So when Jesus withers this fig tree, I think he's powerfully and vividly illustrating for his disciples the truth that God's judgment is coming against hypocritical Judaism. So if we ask the question, why does this happen? Maybe this is the question the the disciples should have asked. That's not what they ask. What do they ask? They ask, how? How did this fig tree wither all at once? But if we ask, why did this happen? I think that's the reason. The reason is Jesus is showing them something. This is going to happen to the Jews. What's the solution? The solution is you must believe. But how did this happen? That's the question they do ask. And I think based on Jesus' answer, you'd have to say that Jesus must have believed God, believed that God would do it. And he must have believed that it was God's will. What must Jesus have done for this to occur? Well, he believed God would do it. He willed it to happen. Well, what does that mean about this tree and about the judgment of Jerusalem? must mean that this is God's will. It is God's will to judge the Jews in this way. So how, how, I'm getting back into why, but how did this happen? Jesus says, If you have faith and do not doubt, you must have had faith with no doubt. And he said this, and he was believing as he did this. But he's setting out this promise for the apostles that is really staggering. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So maybe the last question you would ask, and see how much time we have to draw some lessons here, but who is this promise for? Can I walk out of this door and say that this promise is for me and ask anything in prayer and believing I will receive it? Is this, you know, you just need to have more faith. This is a sham that many false teachers put out. Or you just got to have faith and you can be healed. Well, of course, we know that that's not always God's will. Well, it does seem that this is certainly for the apostles. You see them living this out in the early church as they're, healing people as they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come, and God is responding to that prayer and sending the Holy Spirit at their request, that's really a staggering thing. I think it's a good way to understand what this means to assume that it's spoken to the apostles and to see what it looked like for them. But then I do believe we can apply this to the present under this idea that God is keener that you believe his power than that he display his power. God is more interested that you believe his power 
than that he show his power. And what do I mean by this? Jesus, I believe, is showing what it requires, what kind of relationship you have to have with God to pray effectively. And I just want to make three observations in the time we have left to the effect of the kind of relationship you have to have, believing. What is in that word, believing? If you're going to pray all things you ask in prayer, believing, if you're going to receive, what does your relationship with God have to be like? Well, if you'll pray with effectiveness, I believe from this passage first, you must take God at his word. You must take God at his word. It's the first thing that faith means. Is anything too hard for God? What illustration does Jesus give in the disciples of something they could do? Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it'll happen. Jesus is talking about something that's too hard for men. It's impossible for men to do, but it's not impossible for God to do. He's probably you know, walking down the Mount of Olives, probably looking at Jerusalem. He's probably looking at Mount Zion. And if he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea, that's some 30 miles from Jerusalem. Could you do that? Could you take a whole mountain and throw it into the Mediterranean Sea? Of course you couldn't. It's impossible. But that's the point. Jesus raises something that is impossible to assert that it's not impossible for God to do. And how do we know that? Well, God parted the Red Sea, didn't he? God dammed up the Jordan River. He sent clouds of flies and gnats and frogs and locusts just at a word. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky. Of course, he made everything out of nothing. Is there anything that's too hard for God? This really is, it's a call to believe. He's calling the disciples to believe. He's not calling them to be superheroes. He's calling them to believe God's word. So in, as you see the act, in the Acts of the Apostles, these men, they were acting in faith on the spoken word of Jesus. Jesus gave them these promises. And to us, it seems like, yeah, they, it was just a given that they did this. But they exercised great faith that when Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, it will be done for you. They did that. Can you imagine living with that kind of faith in the word of God? We shouldn't confuse God's willingness with his ability at, at times god isn't willing even when he is able but what jesus is calling the disciples to here is to believe if you'll pray with effectiveness you must take god at his word but second if you're going to pray with effectiveness you must be attuned to the will of god i believe that's evident here in this segment of scripture you must be attuned to the will of god and where do i draw that from i draw that from the fact that i believe jesus knew that it was god's will to judge the jews he knew he knew that this was coming he knew that judaism was going to be replaced and that there was a new order coming these old things were going to be set aside it was empty it was hypocritical it was just absolutely hollow it was meaningless worship. They didn't have new hearts. Jesus was inaugurating something new. What did he say to the woman at the well? Not 
uh, in very soon, it's not going to be in even that mountain. There was a disagreement about which mountain they should worship in. It's not even going to be there. It's not even going to be in Mount Zion. I'm seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. It's going to be something entirely different. Jesus is replacing it. He knew that. So as he gives this illustration, I believe he knows that that is God's will to destroy the Jews as that fig tree was destroyed. Of course, he's a master teacher. He uses a master illustration. Can you imagine coming to school one day and seeing your teacher do that? You would think it was a trick. But no, it was no trick. I'm, I'm just arguing here that Jesus knew God would judge the hypocrisy of the religious Jews. And he intended to illustrate that vividly for his disciples to see. And yet, in that moment, he taught an additional lesson. You know, maybe you'd expect him to say, they say, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Well, that's not really the point. The point is for you to understand that I'm going to judge the Jews. You'd maybe expect that in this context, but that's not what he says. He draws attention to the kind of relationship that they must have that the Jews themselves do not have. He's calling them to faith and to know the will of God. So this is an invitation to pray, not permission for greed. You need to pray to seek God's will. You need to study to know God's will, not just whatever comes to mind, pray for that. No, we must be attuned to God's will. I don't believe Jesus is suggesting that this is something that they would ask for. Mountain be thrown into the sea. No, that wouldn't serve God's purposes. It's just an illustration of the kind of power God has. We do need to know God's will, don't we? And then we need faith to ask for it. That really pushes us in the direction of wrestling with God and studying the scriptures to know what God's will is and then to take it with him and lay out our case and say, God, you said this. Are you going to do this for me? I'm taking you with your word. Like Jacob wrestling with God in prayer. That's really what I believe Jesus is pushing them to do. You have to search out God's will, and you need to ask for it. So it's not really written in the Bible, lots of things that we do in our lives, who you should marry, where you should live, what career you should pursue, when you should buy a house, if you should buy a house, how much you should pay for a house, who you should vote for. There's no chapter and verse for those things. What is God's will for my life? And those things, there's there's freedom. We should be guided by biblical principles. We need discernment. But there's a lot we don't know about God's, maybe you could call it God's secret will. But there is a whole lot that we do know that God has revealed about his will, isn't there? What he wants us to do, how he wants us to obey him. Obey the commands. Serve God and his people. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel, make disciples, do good to all men, submit to authority, honor your parents, love your spouse, train your kids, all of these things that God has revealed. Do we need God's help to do that? Do we need God's power to do that? Actually, we do. We're going to pray effectively. We need to take God at his word. We need to be attuned to the will of God course, all of that presupposes that 
we're right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then finally, I think the last lesson we can take here is if you're going to pray with effectiveness, it'll be due to the power of God. If God is going to answer prayer, if God is going to do marvelous things in your life, it's not going to be because your prayers are so great or because your faith is so strong. It's going to be because God is so powerful. Who is the one who grants these requests? I think Jesus makes it very plain. If you have faith and don't doubt, you won't just do this, but if you you could say this to the mountain, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. He's using the passive voice, right? But who is doing the making things happen? Who's doing the giving so that we would receive? Well, it's it's God. Eventually, in heaven, it would also be Jesus. Based on what he just did, he just made the fig tree wither. Evidently, he can do this too. This is similar, I believe, to what Jesus said not a few, not just a few nights from now in the upper room to the disciples. John 14, he says similar things that are astounding. They're hearing this four times at least in the same week. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In context, he's actually talking about, he's telling them, you saw the works that I did, you're going to do greater works than these. Anything you ask in my name, I'll do it for you. Why? It's actually so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus is glad for the disciples to do greater works than he did on the earth so that the Father would be honored. This is the heart of the Son to the Father. Jesus will do that. He'll show his power through his people. John 15, he says to the disciples in the upper room, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would, would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is God giving. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. He's in that that context talking about bearing fruit and that the fruit would remain. These are things that the disciples would ask for. Lord, give us fruit, give us faith, give us love, give us boldness and help it to stay. Have you ever grown in a way and then it seems like you've learned this lesson and then you just feel like you totally fall off the boat? Sometimes we need help for fruit to remain. Jesus is talking about spiritual fruit for God's glory. If you ask for that, God's going to give that. He says in John 16, another time, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. I think he wanted to give them a certain understanding of prayer right before he left them. He wanted them to know that he was with them and that they could access him by prayer, that they could come to the Father in Jesus' name by prayer and have access to everything they needed. This really is a reminder of dependence. It's not a promise of autonomy. You'll do great things, Jesus said, but you'll do it because I'm doing it through you. And that really became a staple of the apostles' preaching. This man is standing here today, and I tell you, he was 
raised up and given strength in his legs to walk by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who's risen and in heaven today. He's alive. That became the substance of their teaching. This promise that God would do powerful things through them. Really is a remarkable thing. Matthew Henry wrote this. In the kingdom of nature, these disciples should work greater miracles than Jesus. No miracle is little, but some, to our apprehension, seem greater than others. Christ had healed with the hem of his garment, but Peter with his shadow in Acts 5. Paul by the handkerchief that had touched him, Acts 19. Christ wrought miracles for two or three years in one country, but his followers wrought miracles in his name for many ages in diverse countries. You shall do greater works if there be occasion for the glory of God. The prayer of faith, if at any time it had been necessary, would have removed mountains. But he also says this, in the kingdom of grace, not just nature, but of grace in spiritual things. These men should obtain greater victories by the gospel than had been obtained while Christ was upon earth. The truth is the captivating of so great a part of the world to Christ under such outward disadvantages was the miracle of all. I think this refers especially, he says, to the gift of tongues. This was the immediate effect of the pouring out of the Spirit, which was a constant miracle upon the wind. This couldn't happen while Christ was here, he said, in which words are framed and which was made to serve so glorious an intention as that of spreading the gospel to all nations in their own language. This was a greater sign to them that believed not and more powerful for their conviction than any other miracle whatever. These men really did truly do greater works than Jesus. Is that astounding? He promised it and it happened and he did it through them. That's what he's saying. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So maybe you wonder, is this for me? Can I claim this promise? I do believe based on a certain kind of relationship that Jesus outlines, a relationship of faith. We can pray this way and expect that God will show his power to us and through us. We have to take God at his word. We have to be attuned to his will. What, what does he desire right here? Is this for his glory? That's always how he answers with his power. And of course, if it happens, it will be because of his power. There were many times in Jesus' life when unbelievers wanted to see this exact kind of thing. Show us some miraculous sign and we'll believe. And Jesus just refused. He wasn't going to play that game. But here he showed it to his apostles. How did he operate? Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. People wanted to see, to believe. And Jesus says, you need to believe to see. Jesus is far more interested in being believed than in proving himself. He did prove himself, of course. There were plenty of miracles. He healed plenty of people, and he pointed to those. He said, my works testify about me. This is what the Old Testament said would happen when the Messiah come, came. The blind are healed. They see the lame are walking. Clearly, this is supernatural. But even then, they wouldn't believe. They said it's demonic power. 
Jesus never did miracles just for the spectacle of it. And he intended it that it would be the same for his apostles, that men would believe based on the word of God, not through shows of power. But of those who do believe, they will see and know the power of God through their faith. Anything you ask in my name, believing, you will receive. This really highlights the relationship in which we see and ask for God's power through us. And it highlights God's will in the world. And that would be that he would receive glory in all things. Certainly highlights the dependence with which we must live by faith. God is great. There is nothing too hard for him. And Jesus is alive. Nothing asked in his name will be turned away. But we must believe in God and believe in Christ. Or we have no hearing with the Father. We have no sight to see the power that God would show. All things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. May the Lord give us faith that doesn't doubt, that isn't split between two minds, that must have only him to see his will done in the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us by grace and allowing us to know you by faith. Help us to believe and help us to pray, to see your power, to see you work, see your power through uh, the prayer of faith. We feel our weakness in prayer. We feel our frailty. We see the frailty of our faith, and uh, we even stagger at thinking about such a bald statement that you would give to the apostles. As we see your delay and your wisdom at work in the world that is sometimes inscrutable to us, help us not to doubt your power, but to trust you and to know that your will is good but not to hesitate to ask because there is truly nothing too hard for you. And if you will be glorified, you will not hesitate to do it. Strengthen our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.